The sermon today is called The False Victory of Christ. If you're taking notes, The False Victory of Christ. I know that title might sound alarming, and I hope it does. All right, uh, what we're talking about this morning is really all about expectations, about the things that we think will happen, the things that we have uh, looked at and maybe we have heard from others and we get all different kinds of thoughts about the meaning of something. Uh, We will read John chapter 12, starting at verse 12, and we will read and then we will pray and then we will study it together. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowds went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let us pray. God, we do come before you again humbled. We're humbled that we get to read your word. I pray that this morning we would see it for what it is. It is the word of God, the almighty, the sovereign I am, the one who created the universe, including us, has written these words for us so that we can understand them, so we could study them, so that we could apply them to our life. God, I pray that we would not be people with false expectations of Jesus, but that we would let him set the boundaries, him set the box that we uh, understand him. God, I pray that we would not be like these people from Bethany uh, who had false expectations, but that we would understand who Jesus is and what he requires of us. I ask this in his name, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As I said, this this passage, really Palm Sunday, is all about expectations. It's all about what people thought was going to happen. Now, they have reasons for that, and we'll get into that in just a few moments. But uh, it kind of kind of reminds me of when I first moved to Minnesota. Uh, even uh, Whenever I say Minnesota, I kind of get the accent a little bit. All right, but when I first moved there, I moved to this small town, Austin. Uh, not, not a fancy town, not a whole lot to do there. Uh, but there was one restaurant that everyone was always talking about. I'm a food guy. You guys could probably tell that. All right, uh, my favorite food is pizza because I'm Italian, and then pasta is kind of second, and then, you know, of all different kinds of sorts. But uh, my third favorite is ribs, and I cry like that if I don't get them. Uh, but I, I love ribs. And so I'd heard, because all these people in a small town, they're, they're talking about their, their one restaurant that they have, and, you know, yeah, that place isn't so great, and that place, eh, it's nothing special, but Piggy Blue's. That's the place where you want to go, Dean. You like ribs? Yes, I love ribs. 
All right, you will just love this place. And I'd heard that from so many different people. My deacons were telling me that. My, my uh, friends I had made, they were telling me that. And then I finally went there. And what I got on my plate was this dry meat that did not have any flavor. The, these uh, uh, deep-fried potatoes that they called uh, uh, chips that, uh, that were burnt. Uh, it was terrible. And it was so expensive. And I was looking at this and saying, really? I expected more. Right? I expected this to be good. All these people were talking about it. It says, so great. And all these things. Then I get this plate. And it's not what I expected at all. We have expectations. For everything. For everything we do. Whether we expect our spouse to understand what we mean when we say something. Right? That happens. Uh, Even this week, I, I, I said something and... Heather took it a different way. Well, I expected you to understand what I was meaning. We do it all the time. We expect it with social events, right? Uh, this Sunday, I know that we'll, we'll be having our Easter breakfast. I want to warn you. Uh, do not have expectations uh, for Easter breakfast. Be careful about your expectations. We are called to be faithful and to work hard for the gospel's sake. And we let the successes of that fall in the Lord's lap. All right, we all have expectations for the things that we do, uh, for vacations. Maybe you you plan for years, and you're saying, "Oh, we're going to go to this far off place, and it's going to be great." And then when you get back, you go, "Man, it wasn't what I expected." Right? You hear different things. You base all these on your past circumstances. You have all these different baggage that you bring into a situation, and then your expectations are through the roof, or maybe they're so low. Well, Palm Sunday is no different. These people had expectations. They expected Christ to do something, uh, to to be someone. Um, They were wrong. You know, Palm Sunday, we like to talk about it in such positive light because we would expect it to be a good thing, right? It's not a bad thing to say Hosanna and blessed be the name of the Lord. Those are great things. But the motivation that these people had was wrong. The expectations that they put on Christ were wrong. So let, let's understand, you know, before we come to our text in John chapter 12, we have to understand what these expectations were. Why did they do this? Why did they leave these palm branches down and throw down their coats and, and say these words of Hosanna and Praise to the Lord and blessed be the name of the Lord, the Son of David. Why do they say such things? Well, we have to go back in the Old Testament. I'll ask you to turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, Not a book we go to often, but 2 Samuel. Give you a hint, it comes after 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Looking at verse 12. Now this is the Lord. He's talking here to David. He's making the Davidic covenant. Second Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you shall come from your body 
and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love, similar to what we read this morning in Psalm chapter 118, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the covenant that God made with Israel. And specifically here to King David. He says that when you die, when you die, that's not the end of your reign. That's not the end for Israel. After you, your son Solomon, who will build the temple, I will establish his kingdom, his throne, will be forever. Now, did that happen? Not exactly probably how David thought it would. Right? We have this promise of the kingdom that will last forever, that will not go away. And we see that it's unconditional. Right, this isn't, God doesn't put any strings on this thing. He doesn't say, if you do this and you do this, then I will do this. No. No conditions. He just says, I'm going to do this for you. Your throne will be established forever. Your kingdom will never end. But, again, we, it's not exactly how it happened in history. Or at least not the way that we might expect. We would have expected that that meant that Solomon's son would be king. And then his son would be king, and his son would be king, and his son, and it would go forever. And that, that's what we might expect. But that's not the way that God works here. Right? That's not the way he has worked in the nation of Israel throughout their history. Right? He, yes, he gives them this promise, but something happens. We see that the, the kingdom is divided, right? You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, they don't serve God. And what happens? Assyria. Assyria comes in, takes them. They're gone. Bye-bye, northern kingdom. What about his promise? Southern kingdom. They, they sometimes worship the Lord, sometimes they don't. They had good kings and bad kings. Right? But ultimately, they're not faithful. What happens to them? Babylon takes them. They're in exile. But that is not the end. If we were to look at that, we might say, well, all right, well, God's promise, he doesn't fulfill it. But God is not done with Israel. That is something important for us today to understand. God is faithful. God is immutable. Who he makes promises to are for them for, forever. God is not done with Israel. The Israelites understood that. Obviously, it was very important for them. They were looking forward to God fulfilling that promise of the kingdom that would last forever. Now we know a few things about that. We know that it would be a son of David, right? He makes the promise to David. doesn't make it to Saul. He makes it to David. So someone in his ancestry, right, later on, would then be the king, right? If God is going to fulfill his promise, as he always does, then this is what they expected. I'd like you to turn over to the book of Ezekiel. 
We'll be jumping over a, a, a few passages today. Some of you are, are thankful to be able to move your fingers in your Bible for a Sunday. The book of Ezekiel. Chapter 34. And we'll just read verses 23 and 24. And I, this is God talking, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. This is God's promise. Again, he's reaffirming it with his people and saying, I have not forgotten. I will bring you back. Uh, he says uh, in Hosea 3, 5, that he's going to bring them together from all over the earth. All right, and he is going to bring back the kingdom. He's going to keep that promise. And he says here, reminding them that it's through David. So a descendant of David would be the king. So these are the expectations that these people have. That God will save them. And this is in the back of your notes here. Israel expected Jesus to save them politically. Israel expected Jesus to save them politically. Because they're waiting. They're waiting for that king. And they want the kingdom to be established, right? They want Jesus to come. He's a descendant of David after all, right? He's the Messiah, the, all these other prophecies from Isaiah, right? The, uh, the government will be on his shoulders and his name will be wonderful counselor. All those promises that's fulfilled in Jesus. So he's the Messiah. He's the king, right? They, they nailed that part, right? That, that they got the person, right? But they didn't understand the kingdom. They didn't understand who Jesus really was. All right? they, they had some of that cursory knowledge about that, yes, He is the fulfillment, He will bring the kingdom, but they don't understand that it's not now. And it's not in the way that they think. All right, and So they expected Jesus to save them politically. We do the same thing today, by the way. I was uh, this past week was the Gospel Coalition conference down in Indianapolis, and I thank the Lord for live streaming that I could watch it here in Saskatoon. And uh, there was Ben Sass. He's a he's a, a, a senator down in the states, and he came up and he preached a sermon, and I was this is great. <laughs> he comes up and he preaches about how the government cannot save you; only Jesus can. That's what these people got wrong. They were looking for Jesus to save them in a political way. To basically to take Rome, who was ruling over them, and I will say that was abusing them as a nation, and they wanted to kick them out. Uh, they wanted Jesus to do that and to set up his throne there forever. Right? That's what they expected. After all, Jesus... Possessed all the kingly attributes, right? Just in case we go, well, 
those foolish guys, they just didn't get it. You probably wouldn't have gotten it either. I don't, I know I wouldn't have. Alright? They look at Jesus and they see power. Right? He's going around doing miracles. He's walking on water. It's pretty amazing stuff. Wouldn't you expect him then to, if he's so powerful, then to be the ruler? We see that he has influence. Where Jesus goes, thousands follow. Right? He feeds the 5,000. He's got great influence. He's able to talk with Pharisees and Sadducees. He's going to talk with rulers, you know, the young ruler who came to him and said, you know, what must I do to be saved? Sell all your riches. That's a government official. Jesus has influence. All right, he has the character, the meekness, the compassion that you would want in a leader. Jesus possesses that. When he looks at the crowd, uh, this is often something that I try to take into my ministry, when he looks at the crowd, he is filled with compassion. That's a pretty impactful thing to have in a king and a ruler. And of course, he has the heritage. He is a descendant of David. He is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. So yes, they expected Jesus to save them politically, to kick Rome out and to establish his kingdom. So how do they go about, if you turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 12, to our text, how do they go about proclaiming their expectations of Jesus? Well, we see that this is a large crowd, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So who are we talking about? Well, we understand from verse 1 of chapter 12, it says that six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to where? Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Alright, this is right after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead at Bethany. All these people having a feast because Lazarus is alive, right? You know, if you ever think of why there was a good reason to party, it would be that one. Lazarus is raised from the dead and they're excited, they're having this feast. It's good times. And there's a lot of people who have come to this thing. And then they hear, oh, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. You can start to see this crowd kind of putting the dots together. Right? Alright, if Jesus has the power, He has the prophecies, he's, he's everything that we expected the Messiah to be, and He's going to Jerusalem, and we've seen His power that He's raised Lazarus from the dead, let's go there and crown Him! Right? Let's go to Jerusalem, let's prepare the way, and we're going to be the first ones to welcome him into his kingdom. They, they probably thought they were a part of something that was so exciting. This, this fulfillment for thousands of years. They've been told that there would be a kingdom that would last forever. And then 200 years of silence, and now boom, Jesus. And he's everything that they expected and he's coming to Jerusalem, so they just put the two together, and they say, yes, he is the king, and he's coming to establish his kingdom. This is fantastic. Let's go there and prepare the way. All right, so this large crowd, they go, and they, they had heard Jesus was going, so they go there, verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now let's stop for a second. 
Alright, and we need to understand some things about these palm branches. Because we don't see that in Scripture. Alright, we don't, we don't see people really doing that in Scripture of laying down palm branches. And, and so where, where does this come from? Well, from, from Israel themselves, and part of Rome, sure. Alright, but we understand throughout history that there was, uh, there were some revolts against Rome. Uh, the biggest one was the Maccabean Revolt. You might have read about that in history. This was about two centuries before Christ came. All right, and so he's uh, this this guy um, uh, Jacob uh, uh, Maccabee. He is leading this revolt. All right, and there there are Syrians that have come into Jerusalem, and Rome's just letting it happen. And so they kick out these Syrians, all right, from Jerusalem. And then they wave around these palm branches. And that's really the first time that we see this happen in the history for Israel. They're waving around these palm branches. And this then became a symbol of nationalism. Just like like a a flag. It's essentially their flag. They put it on their coins. uh, Both pre pre their uh, this time frame and then post as well. We see that the palm branches on their coins. Right, this this was their their flag. Right, they didn't have the tapestry that we did, but this was their symbol. Right, it would be like if the prime minister came to Saskatoon, right, and you you wanted to go and see him. You might bring your a little Canadian flag with you and 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 welcome him. Right, I remember uh, when I was a kid, uh, George W. Bush. Uh, I'm from Seattle, uh, from the states, and George W. Bush, the president, came to Everett, my hometown. And uh, I, I didn't go to the, the, um, the rally that he was having, uh, but it was in downtown Everett, and we were passing through, and I saw all the people, all the people with American flags everywhere, right? And little American flags, waving them, getting them ready, and there was so much traffic because the president was coming, and, but they were, they were excited, and so they were showing that pride, that nationalism. And that's essentially what these people are doing. They're showing their national pride. Now, the problem with that is that's in contrast to what Jesus is coming to do. They didn't get it. All right, there's nothing really spiritual that is happening in, at Palm Sunday. I know it's disappointing to hear. Right? We, we raise this up as you know, a, a good day of worship to God, but the expectations that these people had wasn't so that they could worship God. They just wanted their kingdom. They wanted their nation. They wanted a ruler. There's nothing spiritual that is happening here. It is more of a political rally than it is anything. But, you know, the, the uh, politics and religion uh, are deeply combined in Israel's history because they, they had a theocracy. Right, which means that they, uh, for the majority of what they, they did in their history, that they looked to God first and then to, to the leaders that he established. So they were ruled by God. So with this, they have this political rally, and then they start doing things that we would say these are good things to say, right? These are good things to welcome Jesus into town with. So they took out the palm branches and they went out to meet him. Other, other passages, the synoptic gospels go through and say that they took their jackets off, things like that. All right. And they cry out, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. All true, by the way. All true, all good things to say. All right, but they, they didn't have the proper motivation for it. They didn't quite understand what they were doing. All right, but they, they say these things. This is the Hallel. All right, this was uh, basically Psalm chapter 113 through Psalm 118. Uh, they would sing these uh, these chapters, and that's all psalms are, right? They're songs. All right, that's that's what psalm means. It's a song of songs, or right, uh, the, the book of songs. All right, and so they they're singing these songs in the Feast of Tabernacles. They did that every day during that feast. They would they would sing chapters one thirteen through one eighteen. All right, and so they are. They all know it. They're all singing it. And so Jesus is coming in, and these are the words that they say. All right, Psalm chapter 118, uh, we see uh, verse 25. They, they say this, Hosanna. All right, what this word means is please save. Save us. Again, they don't understand uh, what, what they're saying there. Because Dave is not just talking about deliverance from enemies all right they're, they're saying it save us from rome but we understand that jesus came why to seek and to save from our sins not from governments not from men but they say that save us that's psalm 118 verse 25 he says he who comes blessed is he who comes so they pray a blessing upon the Messiah. They even call him, just in case we're all wondering exactly what their motivations are, they even call him there the King of Israel. Now that's going to come back into play when uh, Pilate is asking Jesus, uh, is it true? Are you the King of Israel? All right, this is important for us to note that Jesus isn't the one who's saying, yes, call me these things. All right, uh, He doesn't look for that. He was just coming into town to uh, celebrate the Passover. But these are the, the lauds, the honors that they are bestowing on him. Uh, and also we have Matthew and Luke, and they call him the son of David. So these are clearly laying out the expectations of the Israelites here. Specifically, these are the people from Bethany. I'm sure that some of the people in Jerusalem came back. But it's not, it's not correct. By the way, for us to say, in one week, look how the crowd changed. From one week, uh, they, they were saying, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the, you know, by the end of the week, they're saying crucify him. It's not exactly the same people. I'm sure there was some overlap there. But it's not exactly the same crowd. These people came from Bethany. All right, so they, their expectations are one, kick Rome out. Two, a new age of worship. That's what was prophesied in the Old Testament. He says to in Ezekiel, I will take out that heart of stone and I will put in a new heart that beats for me. All right, so those were the expectations there. And to lift Israel to prominence. That's really the big thing for Israel. Because we need to understand during David's time, they were all that in a bag of chips, right? Like they, they were the ruling ones. And then all of a sudden, Assyria and Babylon, and they, they fall apart and now there's no kingdom, and they just wanted to be lifted to prominence again. All right, Make Israel great again, I'm sure is what they thought. And so they, they want to be lifted high to have the rule over Rome and all these other countries. And now 
That, that's the expectation that they have. And of course, they, they see then Jesus coming in on the colt, right? Uh, which is a prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Fear not, is what it reads in verse 14. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. So they, they have all these expectations. Then they see Jesus fulfilling one of the prophecies here with coming in on the colt, what the Zechariah prophesied the, the Messiah would do. And so they, they, they're ready to crown this guy, right? But they don't understand. And neither did the disciples. This is, I always find it humorous. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. That's constant for them. They don't get it. Peter, uh, he's usually not quite understanding what Jesus is talking about. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So as they were able to look back, they understood what was happening. All right. But verse 17. All right. uh, Talking about that, that crowd. Alright, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So even though the disciples didn't get it and there's all these false expectations of what Jesus was coming to do, the crowd kept on talking about it. I mean, if, if you had seen a guy come back from the dead, you'd probably talk quite a bit about it too. They're going around though to the town letting people know what had happened. And I'm sure they were talking about how he came in riding the colt too. And uh, Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him. So what was the motivation? All right, the reason why uh, was that they heard he had done this sign. That's us. The expectations that we have for Christ, uh, and some of the reasons uh, why people say that they follow him, it's wrong. Here, the motivation for the crowd was not to have this king who had established new worship. They just wanted to make Israel great again. And their motivation there was power. It was a sign that he did. That he raised Lazarus from the dead. And that's really all they cared about. There's no love here. There's no repentance of their sin. And there's number two in the back of your bulletin. Jesus, or, uh, Israel expected Jesus to cater to their expectations. They say, this is what we think you're going to do. And we're going to try our best to make sure it happens. We're going to tell everyone that what you did, even though he said, don't tell anybody. All right, they're, they're trying to make sure that it happens. They're, they have all these expectations and they're expecting Jesus to just fit in line with what they already think. Well, that's not Jesus. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's writings. Uh, most of you know he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, there's allegory there of uh, Jesus and Aslan, the lion. And uh, in one of the most famous passages there, I think it's in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, he, he says that Aslan is not a tame lion. And you say, yes, the allegory fits. Jesus, he doesn't just fit into your expectations. He's he's not something that you can tame. He doesn't just play to your whims and your preconceived notions. He lays out the path. He says, this is who I am. He says, I am the way, the truth, 
life. Don't put your expectations on Jesus and expect Him to fulfill each one of them outside of Scripture. People do that today. Whether it's the prosperity gospel on TV and uh, or on the radio and there are preachers who come in and say, well, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to have this, this, and this and your life's going to go great. Or if you follow through with my plan of doing steps one, two, and three, then this will certainly be the result and Jesus will do that for you. No. He is not our slave. He is not slave to these people. They had false expectations of Jesus. So, what is Jesus' mission then? If it's not to establish the kingdom, if it's not to play into the whims of the people, why did He come? Well, the main issue, the main issue between these two groups, between Jesus and the people who are laying down the palm branches, the people from Bethany, is just that misunderstanding of who Jesus is and why He came. They expected the kingdom then, but they forget Luke chapter 19, verse 10, famous passage, says He has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why He came. He didn't come to do what you think. Yes, He will establish the kingdom. We look forward to that. That's something future. Right? And right now we have a spiritual kingdom that He has given us salvation. And He has shown what the rule of God is for us to know Him, to trust in Him, to be free from our sins. That's why He came. And they said, no, well, it's to establish that kingdom now. Israel expected Jesus to fit in their box. That's the last point there. Israel expected Jesus to fit into their box. And we do the same thing today. We say things like, well, God is fair. When we try to understand the world and we try to make God fit into our boxes that we have in our mind about how do, how do we talk about things that happened this morning, like the, the bombing there in Egypt, how do we talk about that? Well, we need to get our boxes from Scripture to understand He is good and He is just and He is righteous all the time. What He does in the world will fit within His character. We don't get to say, well, that's not fair of God. As I taught the kids a few months ago, it's like a, a Lego uh, talking to its maker and saying, I don't like the way you used me. No, you're the creation. He's the creator. He gets to tell you what to do. You're His. The expectations that we put on Jesus, the boxes that we try to make Him fit into, He doesn't fit into any of our boxes. He makes His own. Jesus taught His kingdom was a spiritual one. And the kingdom was offered in two ways. In salvation, and then belonging 
to the kingdom, that spiritual one now, the future one when he establishes it. And we see that in the book of Revelation. So what can we learn from these people? We like Palm Sunday. It's a, it's a good day to say Hosanna, to say save us, to say praise Him who comes in the name of the Lord. Those are great things to say. But we need to make sure that we have that proper motivation. That we understand, uh, as I said a few weeks ago, uh, when we're talking about slavery in the book of Ephesians, that the gospel is not about political salvation. It is about spiritual revolution. And these people didn't get that. And I wonder if we don't either. Jesus comes and He offers us salvation and change. So what are our false expectations of God? Do we expect Him to give us money or a good life or our family to go well? Uh, some of us fall into that trap for sure of expecting, well, I raised them just as I raised these other kids and now I have these other kids who are not following the Lord. And we can doubt God in that. He never promises that this will be exactly what will happen. Those are false expectations that we put on God. And we expect Him to be this kind of construct that we've made of fair. God is not fair. God is just. And God is good. We don't deserve anything. But yet He offers us everything. So are we trying to make God fit in that box that we make of Him fit into our constructs of how we understand the world to work? Are we letting Him define Himself? He comes to Moses and He says, I am the I am. God is the one who defines who He is. And what is our motivation in following Christ? Is it, are we seeking a sign? Like, um, like these people in Bethany who had seen Lazarus raised from the dead? Are we seeking a sign? Are we seeking some kind of blessing of that money, of that good family, of that good life? Or do we love Jesus? And do we understand that He offers us salvation, that He offers us uh, an opportunity to repent and to be changed. And really, you know, when we talk about uh, Palm Sunday, we, we say these things. We say Hosanna. And we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But do we mean it? Can you honestly say that? Blessed be the name of the Lord, even when he doesn't fit your expectations. Even when he doesn't work in the way that you think maybe he should. That is when we have to cry out like Job did. He was there and saying, I, I don't understand what God is doing. My family, my livelihood. God is not fitting into my box. And God shows up and says, who are you to make a box? Where were you when I sealed in the ocean with stone doors? Where were you? when I set the foundations of the earth. And then he cries out, Who am I? I have spoken of things too wonderful for me. Don't, don't just 
put these expectations on Christ and then when He doesn't fulfill these non-biblical expectations, abandon your faith or lose trust in Jesus. He doesn't promise you anything except for salvation, except for an eternal hope, except for suffering, and to be with Him forever. That's what He promises. So let us be faithful here and now. Let us lay down those palm branches and say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. Hosanna. Let us truly follow Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do give You the glory. We give You the glory for Jesus. For for the plan that he, He went through. Even as people were saying, this is what you should do, Jesus. This is how you should act. These are the things you should do with your power. They didn't get it. And sometimes we don't get it. That Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. He came to say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. He came to offer us acceptance into that kingdom. He came to offer us salvation. Not from Rome, Lord, even not from what we see going around in our uh, time and in our location. But he came to save us from ourselves, from our sin. And to give us that peace, that comfort, that eternal hope. He came to give us justification. To be made, or to be declared righteous in the eyes of God. Something we could not do before. And to sanctify us. So one day we can be in glory with Him. We thank you for what is offered in Jesus Christ who He is, the love that He has for us, His character. God, I pray that we would not be a people who throw our expectations of what we expect Jesus to do and to be, and we throw them on Him and expect Him to obey our whims and our rules. God, I pray that we would humble ourselves. That we would see Jesus as the sovereign I am who says, I am the I am. I define myself. And that we would lovingly and through repentance follow him. That we would not just be people who follow him for, um, for uh, blessings. Uh, that we would not be people who just follow him uh, for power or for influence but that we would follow Him because He's the Savior. And He's the only one who can redeem us. And Lord, even for us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, He offers us sanctification. The continuing of our journey to be made like Him. God, I pray that we would humble ourselves, repent of our sin, whatever that is, so that we can say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.